From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. Jerry, don't let us for the moon. We have the stars. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! To infinity and beyond! This is Simon Rose. You join us for the business of film, where, as ever, our guide is James Cameron Wilson as he takes us through what's been happening at the UK box office. I got a sneaking idea what might be happening at the top, James, but I could be wrong. Well, as you may remember last weekend, box office was down 0.8%. And the weekend before that, it was down minus 25.1%. So these have not been great times. But we do have a surprise, something I really didn't see coming. And that is a film called Chal Mira Put Three, storming it at number six. At just, <laughs> oh, you tease, you tease. At just 54 cinemas with a screen average of 3,573. Wow. Which is phenomenal. And I really didn't see this coming <laughs> last weekend of all weekends. However, there is another surprise. Mm. A new film, Simon, has just set a new pandemic-era record. No film has made this much over one weekend, starring an Englishman, no less. Mm. And the film title is Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which took an astonishing $90.1 million in just one weekend in the U.S., breaking the original film's very strong 80.1 million opening three years ago. And it is, of course, a supervillain sequel starring Tom Hardy. And no film has made that much over one weekend. But we're talking about the UK Uh, box office. Yes, 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 yes. I'm not even going to assume we're going to be talking about what I think you're going to be talking about next. You may have found another way to spin it out, but go on. (laughs) Well, the box office last weekend was up. 448.3%. over the previous weekend. We are talking about a new film showing, I have to say, at a record 772 cinemas called No Time to Die, which made over 25.9 million quid between Thursday and Sunday, beating Spectre's 19.8 million pound opening weekend and Skyfall's opening weekend of £20.2 million. Mm-hmm. The latter, until now, being the biggest commercial bond of all. No Time to Die is also the highest-grossing film of 2021 in the UK, after just four days already, as well as being the top-performing film since the pandemic began, after just four days. And for I- IMAX globally... It was the biggest ever October weekend in history. So on so many fronts, the box office at last is looking up and looking incredibly healthy. Well, if you remember this, no, it wasn't this time last year, was it? It was was earlier last last year where we thought we were wondering that the the failure of No Time to Die coming out was actually going to doom cinema. And as you pointed out last week, it's the longest bond ever. It's always remarkable when a very long film does quite so well at the box office. It happens, you know, one thinks of Titanic and well, well, some of the other bonds, but obviously it's more difficult to get bums on seats if you have fewer showings in a day. Well, it's interesting because 
people have always been really worried about long films because you cannot show so many screenings. Mm. But I think since the multiplex, you can. I mean, for instance, at my local, I think it was showing 18 times a day. But when you look at Titanic, Titanic was four hours and it became the highest grossing film of all time. And yes. you look at The Sound of Music, which is over three hours, and The Godfather, all these record-breaking films are very long. Maybe the audience feels they're getting their money's worth. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. But I think the multiplex has changed all that. Yes. Because um, you, you can show it. You so gave us the impression ago. last week that you, you did find one or two things to admire in the film. Um, yeah, a few film franchises, I think, have managed to consistently generate that kind of buzz every time a new chapter appears. But regarding No Time to Die, that buzz had seemed more like a fanfare of trumpets, particularly as the release had been repeatedly put back. Yes, yeah. Only a pandemic could stop Bond in his tracks. And so it's somewhat ironic, as I might have said last week, that the secret weapon in the new film is a virus. And you have you seen it yet, Simon? No, I haven't had a chance to, James. I'm sorry, okay. but I will. I will. I'm sure you will. In the last Bond film, Spectre, released over six years ago, back in October 2015, the theme was hostile surveillance. Now it's an artificially engineered intelligent virus that is genetically coded only to kill certain demographic sectors implemented by a DNA sequence. I have found over the years that most James Bond films don't exactly match the buzz that they generate. There's the new Bond girl, the theme song, the villain, the exotic locations, the gadgets. But I, I feel as a cohesive whole, they don't always hold up. In short, most of them are exceedingly episodic. With the Daniel Craig films, which follow a linear chronological line, this has been less the case. They have felt like a genuine series. And so in the new film, Bond is still pining for Vesper Lind, who drowned, as you may remember, in, in Casino Royale, which is a bone of contention for his new romantic partner, Madeleine Swann, played again by Leia Seydoux. The film opens with a low-key, old-school prologue fe featuring Madeleine Swann as a child, which sets up the rest of the film nicely. Then we're listening to the now very familiar theme song sung by Billie Eilish, which shot to number one in February of last year, becoming the first James Bond theme recorded by a female singer to top the UK chart. And by the youngest artist at that, Billie Eilish was only 18 at the time. According to her brother, Phineas O'Connell, they actually wrote and recorded it three days on a tour bus in Texas before <laughs> flying to London and having Hans Zimmer whip up a 70-piece... I may be film. the only person then in the country who hasn't heard it yet. No, it hasn't, it hasn't been on Radio 3, as far as I'm aware. Oh, I'm uh, so familiar with it. Uh, I, I actually got a tab to listen to it, because somebody mentioned it the other day, and I haven't actually heard it yet. But I'm sure I, I, I will soon. We obviously don't go to the same nightclubs. Uh, no, James, I've yet to, I have yet to go to a nightclub, and I hope I will go to my death not having been to one. Not my sort of thing at all, I'm afraid. But Billie Eilish is just one prominent figure attached to this extraordinary chapter in the 007 franchise. We've got old hands Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who wrote the basic script, script with yes, comic yes, tweaks yes. from Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and an overall polish from the film's director, Carrie Joji. For 
Fukunaga, the first American to direct a Bond film, in spite of his name. I was a huge fan of Fukunaga's first film, San Nombre, less so of his Jane Eyre with Mia Wasikowska and Michael Fassbender, which I think actually would have benefited because I went back to my original review and said it was too short. The story was too complex to be squeezed into two hours. And so I think it's wonderful that Kerry Joji Fukunaga has managed to get this Bond film to 163 minutes. Um, and I, I really don't know which minute I would want to excise from it. It is a beautifully calibrated machine. And the quiet moments are just as important as the action set pieces, which inevitably deliver with knobs on. I love the moment in the car in Matera, Italy, when Bond insists on finning, finishing his conversation with Madeleine, even though they are being fired upon by a phalanx of gunmen. But he has so much faith in the bulletproof glass that he's determined to finish the conversation. Or the scene where Bond is belittling M, played by Ray Fiennes, by suggesting that M's desk looks much bigger these days which, of course, means he thinks that M is much smaller. Um, there is just every scene just delivers, and they all seem to be intermeshed. And after the relative disappointment of Tenet and Fast and Furious 9, No Time to Die does live up to the hype, and I am going to do something, Simon, I very rarely do. I'm going to go back and see it again next week. Oh, Wow. Okay. I, I can't wait to see it again because there is so much in it. I, I think what I really like about the Daniel Craig Bonds is their grounding in reality. When Bond lands on a slab of concrete, you really feel it. Hard surfaces are given the respect they deserve, not treated like Play-Doh in so many yes. other big yes. action unless, movies. Unless they're the surfaces of an invisible car, yes. Well, that wasn't <laughs> Daniel Craig. I'm talking about the Daniel Craig. Oh, was Craig. that pre-Craig? Oh, Winter. yes, it was pre-Craig. Yes, yes, I'm was, sorry. Yeah, was that long ago. I have a slight problem with Daniel Craig, and, and it's not... It's going to surface in this movie. And it's in one of the films I suddenly thought in an action sequence, as he was tumbling and doing all this sort of thing, I suddenly realised that, to my mind, he resembled Norman Wisdom. Oh, and unfortunately, the moment that comes into your mind, yeah. it's much harder to take him as seriously as you were before. Well, you've probably ruined it for me next week. <laughs> I, I hope not. But uh, do you just think in moments when he's when he's rolling, you know, away from an explosion or trying to get away from somebody and throwing himself out a window, it, you just half expect him to go, Mister Grimsdyke. Um, but maybe, maybe, maybe the film will so captivate me that I won't. I won't think of that. I certainly. Well, so I, I suspect that ninety nine point nine percent of people no. who go to see No Time <laughs> yes. to Die even know who Norman Wisdom is. Even a greater number than that, I imagine. Yes, what a great shame! What a great shame! But uh, I mean, talking of the people involved, I mean, we've got not one but two Oscar-winning villains. I, I did have problems hearing sometimes what Rami Malek was saying, Rami Malek. That's uh, often a problem with him, I find, yes. Oh, really? Do you find that? Yes. Okay. Yes, he um, made a television series called Mr. Robot, where I had to have the subtitles on the whole time. Yes. Interesting. So he, he's a bit of a Casey Affleck or a yes. Joaquin Phoenix. Y yes, yes. Who is similarly guilty. Yeah, yeah. But the plot points, I find, also of the, uh, the Daniel Craig James Bond films are only too feasible. So like hacking and surveillance mm. and pandemics. They, these are very real threats yes. in our, yes. our day yes. and age. And beyond 
all this, no time to die, has fun inverting all the old cliches for which the series has been roundly criticized of late. So that the comic foil is actually the Spanish-Cuban actress Ana de Armas, last seen with Daniel Craig in Knives Out. And the blonde bimbo, played by Billy Magnuson, is a dodgy CIA agent whom Bond dubs Book of Mormon. The point is, though, that he's male. There are also some extraordinary revelations, which I shan't reveal here, of course, which fans will be talking about for decades to come. I think I can say there's a new 00 agent, played by Lashana Lynch, that maybe Bond has been replaced, but not for the first time. And all this is revealed pretty early on, I should say. So there's a lot to keep one engrossed. On some occasions, different dramatic strands are being knitted together in the same scene. So, yeah, it's exciting. It's, mo it's moving. It's the most moving James Bond film I have seen. It's funny. Thank you, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's suspenseful. It's very surprising. It's largely credible and epic. But above all, it's not episodic, which so many of the other Bond yes, films have been. Yes. And it really is a beautifully calibrated animal. Well, James, OK, uh, that's wonderful. I think after all that, perhaps we ought to just briefly uh, pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Business of Film on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with James Cameron Wilson. So let's uh, uh, forget No Time to Die just for a moment or two. What else is in the charts you were talking yeah, we, about? Yeah, this is a chart show, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it is. It is. Well, the chart is no doubt dominated by No Time to Die, and I suspect well, other films will is. suffer as a result. Well, well, well funnily enough, not all films, because I, I think if people can't get into Bond and they go to the cinema specifically to see No Time to Die, maybe they'll treat themselves to seeing another film. Hmm. But we'll, we'll rush down the chart until we talk about two other new films. At number two, we've got Shung Ji and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which was at number one, down 50 1% for a total of 19.7 million. At number three, we've got Free Guy, which is holding really well, which was at number three, with a total of 16.6 million pounds. At four, amazingly, Paw Patrol, the movie, is actually up 16%. <laughs> and it was at seven last weekend. It's now at number four. And it's made a total of 8.1 million Pounds. At number five, we've got The Many Saints of Newark, which was at number two, down 75%. But as I said in my review, I felt it was more like it should have been made for television. Mm. We've got the phenomenal Chalmira Putt 3 at number six, which is an Indian film set in and around the world of illegal immigrants in the UK. At number seven, The Crude's a New Age, which was at number nine, that has gone up 7% with a total of £9.8 million. Candyman down 49%, but that's made a total of five million quid. As I said, it's one of the best horror films of late. At number nine, we've got Jennifer Hudson as Aretha Franklin in Respect, which I thought was a rather conventional biog although I thought Jennifer Hudson was just absolutely amazing. And I love actually the singing sequences. That was, yeah, down 70%. That's made a total of 1.9 million pounds. 
The worst film of the year, Space Jam, A New Legacy, is at number 10, down 33%, with an embarrassing 12.8 million. At number 11, down 45%, Jungle Cruise, with a total of 12.5 million. Mm -hmm. And at number 12, we have The Green Knight, which I failed to see last week, down 67%, which was at number 8. Um, it's um, also available on streaming, I think. Is that an Amazon film? I can't remember. I did see it. I'm sure I saw it as I flicked through um, my telly the other day. Okay. Well, I, it was showing at 78 cinemas hmm. um, on the back of some highly favourable reviews. I did manage to catch it, but I was surprised to see how few cinemas are now showing it. But then maybe I shouldn't be surprised. As if it's a fairly, fairly weird endeavour that should probably only appeal to the fans of David Lowry, who makes rather obscure films like Ain't Them Bodies Saints and A Ghost Story. He wrote, directed, edited and co-produced The Green Knight, which he shot in Ireland in 2019. So it is he who should reap all the praise or indeed any criticisms. But let me warn you from the start, this is not a knight's tale. In fact, the Green Knight, which is really a tree on horseback, doesn't have a very big part, as this is the story of Sir Gawain, the nephew of King Arthur, played by Dev Patel. He's a bit of a wastrel, and we first meet him in a brothel on a freezing December morning, where he is nursing a hangover and is woken by Essel, played by Alicia Vikander, with, I think, she was nursing a West Country accent uh, by having a jug of cold water poured over his naked body. Uh, without going into The Green Knight, which is an extraordinary sequence, the film is basically a journey of discovery in which Gawain, or Garvin, as Sean Harris calls him, must overcome various obstacles and encounters all sorts of beings, from ghosts and a naked giantess to a talking fox. At times it reminded me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but without the jokes. It is, though, one of the most visually embracing films I have seen for a while, with a darkness that is hard to shake off. Yet for all its attention to the authenticity of the times, above and beyond the fantasy elements, I was surprised to see the word honour spelt without a U in the exquisite calligraphy that often graces the screen. But then David Lowry is American. I'll, I'll give him that. Okay, James. Um, now, um, you want to talk about an, an another movie, um, rather more serious, perhaps, than uh, some of those we've discussed recently, don't you? But no less significant. Yes. Um, it's called Getting Away with Murder, in brackets, S, end bracket. The important thing to state about its presenter and its director, producer and writer who has spent a total of 18 years on this documentary, is that David Nicholas Wilkinson is not Jewish. In fact, he was insistent that all the funding for his film came from non-Jewish sources. While Getting Away With Murders focuses, it focuses considerably on evil. I felt it was primarily about apathy. Wilkinson says near the beginning that in one time or another, in almost every European country, the Jews have been relentlessly persecuted. 
a proud Yorkshireman, Wilkinson grew up just 35 miles outside of York, where he was assured that the horrors of the Holocaust could never happen in his own country. But in 1190, the mm. entire Jewish population of York was massacred, while in the 20th century, 400 suspected Nazi war criminals lived with impunity in the UK. Getting Away with Murders is a long and comprehensive documentary packed with astonishing facts, are very articulate interviews, harrowing film footage, and a periodic roll call of the Nazis who lived out their autumnal years in freedom, comfort, and luxury. I shall spare you some of the more grisly details that are revealed in the film, but most of us are familiar with the statistics, if not the minutiae. In Auschwitz, the most famous factory of death during the Second World War, a thousand people were systematically terminated every 20 minutes. And yet David Wilkinson travels elsewhere to find more horrific facts. For instance, on one day in Lithuania, there was so-called cleansing of 4,273 superfluous Jewish children. While all this is sickening enough, what gets David's goat is how the perpetrators of these unimaginable crimes got off scot-free due to, due to a combination of indifference, mm. complacency and red tape. As one talking head noted, justice was not a priority at the end of the war. Justice was a luxury that people couldn't afford. This is not a film for everyone, but it is a vital document that I think should be handed down from one generation to another. Thankfully, we are living in more inclusive times. But if you were in Nazi Germany and you were Jewish or homosexual or a dwarf or a gypsy or even a twin, what happened to you doesn't bear thinking about. It defies the imagination. Here, David notes, justice does have a price tag. As much an accomplished film in its production values, it is also a noteworthy piece of investigative journalism. Wilkinson has gathered an impressive array of eloquent authorities on his subject, including the 100-year-old Benjamin B. Ferencz, the last surviving prosecutor at the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials, who is still extraordinarily compassmentous and understandably emotional. It is these moments that show you the human side of the tragedy, because how can you grasp the enormity of the final solution? The Nazi war machine exterminated six million Jews. The director notes that his beloved Yorkshire is the biggest county in England, but still doesn't have that many people living within its borders. Nor does Denmark or Finland or Singapore or Norway or New Zealand or Slovakia. Of course, it is unthinkable. And it's unthinkable that the angel of death Joseph Mengele could return to Germany after the war under his own name, live with some nuns and be known to everybody except to the police. Eventually, he died of a stroke while swimming off the coast of Brazil. And I've seen a lot of documentaries on the Holocaust, but what David Nicholson Wilkinson, Nicholas Wilkinson has dug up is quite fresh and extraordinary and emotive. It is very long, and I believe you have seen... I mean, it's a very well-made film, isn't it? 
It, it is. I didn't see it in, in cinema. It's extraordinarily well made. I have only watched some of it so far. I find it, it quite hard to watch, but I shall be watching it um, periodically until I finish. I think it's extremely good. Uh, and as you say, well-researched, well-made, and just you know, it makes you incredibly angry. I mean, the idea that, that you know, Nazi war criminals were, were living here and you know working as ticket inspectors at, at london bridge station retiring yes. on pensions working for the coal board running a and b in edinburgh all these sort of things and you know known about but just not prosecuted it just yes makes your blood boil and i i hope the film does incredibly well um i mean D david appears to have basically put everything in it he and his wife over the last 16 years or so and i just hope that they're People uh, respond to it, difficult and challenging though it is. So it's getting away with, well, what do we call it? Getting away with murders, but the S is in um, in brackets at the end, in cinemas at the moment. Uh, it's a good title, actually. But it will be, but it will be uh, available for streaming, I'm sure, very soon on DVDs and everything else. And it, yes, it, it deserves to be watched by everybody. It, James, it should uh, sadly, spur a major conversation, yeah. I think. Sadly, we are out of out of time, though. That's it for this edition of uh, The Business of Film. James Cameron Wilson will be back at the same time next week. I want to be alone. My precious. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you?